0: Glad you're here. My name is Bryant, lead pastor. If you're brand new with us investigating the Jesus thing, maybe you're a longtime follower of Jesus. This whole month, um, the series is based off of what Jay set up. Like we're going to look at basically what is celebrated in the scripture. And all of us celebrate things. I mean, some of you um, this past week, a lot of you celebrated either your own kid or somebody else's kid um, who graduated. And so that's a huge celebration. For some of you, it's a really huge celebration because you weren't weren't sure it was going to happen. And so there's the hope that they're going to move out one day. So that was a huge building block into your um, vision for the future. We celebrate um, getting a promotion. We celebrate, obviously, getting married. Um, I'm not going to condone this, but some of you have had a celebration on the end of a marriage. um, If we were just to be really real tonight, some of you have celebrated. Um, We celebrate having our first kid. I mean, there are certain things where it's just worthy of celebration, man where you're breaking open the good wine and you're enjoying what has just happened, Um, or if you grew up Baptist, the sparkling cider and just celebrating the heck out of that thing, right? But celebration is a huge thing. Celebration is a biblical thing. And so over the next couple weeks, we're going to look at like four, um, what I would call behaviors, four characteristics, Through the life of four different characters in the scripture that really illustrate the fact that there are certain things that God celebrates in an extreme way. In fact, there are certain things, this sounds kind of weird, but literally light up the heart of God and invite the activity of God into our lives in a way that it doesn't happen otherwise. And you see this all throughout the scripture. But here's where I want to start today, and I want to go in a quick left turn, completely different direction. Here's the bottom line that I want to begin to introduce for you, is that the greatest measure of your maturity, of a person's maturity, and honestly, if you're here today and not a Jesus follower, like this applies to you whether you factor in Jesus or not. One of the greatest measures of somebody's maturity is how they handle authority how they handle power, ultimately how they handle influence. Like there is maybe nothing more discouraging, nothing more aggravating, nothing more honestly angering when you find a person, an individual who has some of this at some level or in some area of their life and they leverage it for the sake of them rather than the people that they've been called to lead. But one of the greatest indicators of maturity is what do you do when you have some influence? What do you do when you have some power, regardless of what that looks like? What do you do when you have some kind of authority in some area of your life? And just like it's really difficult to watch somebody abuse this, maybe one of the most inspiring things is when you meet somebody, when you interact with somebody, or you see a leader from a distance who has some of this and leverages it not for themselves but in fact they say no to themselves for the sake of the individual or individuals they have authority or influence with there's almost nothing that is more inspiring than that now here's the thing and this is just my theory I don't think any of us really know what we would do until we're in that position and we have to pull the lever. I don't think any of us fully know what we would do until we finally are faced with a situation where we really are the most influential person in the room, where we really do have authority with a group of people. We never really know what direction we're going to go. But one of the greatest indicators of your maturity is what you do with some of this one of the best examples one of the greatest examples in all of scripture of somebody who had a lot of this and leveraged it and leveraged it in a way that was incredibly inspiring was a guy by the name of David And I hate in the scriptures because, in some ways, we write off a lot of David's story because of an event that happened, which I mean, rightfully so, it was a major event where he went way off the rails. But there is a reason why, even at the end of this guy's life, God says he's a man after my own heart, even with all of his flaws. And David illustrates this in an extraordinary way. In fact, the whole story of David, if you're not familiar with it in the Old Testament, it starts with a guy by the name of Samuel. Samuel. Um, in ancient times, he's basically like God's spokesman. He's the go-between for God speaking to the people. And Samuel is given a mission basically by God, as weird as that sounds, to go to a guy's house by the name of Jesse and to anoint the next king of Israel or the second king of Israel. So Samuel, the prophet, goes to Jesse's house, which is actually the father of David. He's got a bunch of sons, but he goes to Jesse's house, shows up at the door unannounced and says, hey, Jesse, nice to meet you. Um, I'm here basically on kind of an undercover mission. I want to offer a special sacrifice. He doesn't give Jesse a lot of information on the front end. He just says, listen, gather all of your family, all of your sons together. We're going to have a sacrifice. And Samuel's basically desire was to anoint the next king of Israel. But he's got to do it in kind of an undercover way because there's a big problem. Israel already has a king. So if it gets out that Samuel is going around doing a reconnaissance mission to anoint the next king of Israel, Samuel ultimately is going to give up his life. And so he goes to Jesse, doesn't give him a lot of information initially, but says, hey, just gather all of your sons. And then Samuel basically, however this works, knows that God's going to give him the nod about who is going to be the next king of Israel. And so Jesse, you maybe know this story, gathers all of his sons together, and Samuel launches into kind of a weird game of the bachelor, where all of these guys are before him, and he's going to determine, as God speaks to him, who the next king's going to be. And rather than get a rose, they're eventually going to get a a crown, and they are going to become the man with all of the authority, all the power, and all of the influence in Israel during the golden age of Israel. And so Samuel records it this way. If you've got your Bible, um, you can go to 1 Samuel 16, but it's also going to be on the screen if you can't find it. And here's what's recorded in Samuel in the Old Testament. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. So like, get the picture. Jesse is there. He's told by Samuel, who shows up his door to gather all of his sons. All of his sons are kind of lined up. They're about to offer this sacrifice. And Samuel has the underlying goal to anoint the next king of Israel. And so each son is kind of brought out before him. And he's waiting for God to go, that's the guy right there. And so Eliab comes out and Samuel immediately thinks that's the guy. That is the guy. Men's health, like, I mean, he's ripped, he's cut, he's tall. Like, he just looks like a guy who's going to be king. You know what I mean? Like, he just looks the part. He's firstborn, so he's probably type A. I mean, it's perfect. And so Samuel sees him and says, okay, that's got to be the Lord's anointed. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. Not, like, rejected him as a person, but, like, he's not the guy. Because Samuel, I mean, Samuel did what all of us do at some level. The first thing that you notice about people is not their IQ. The first thing you notice about people is not their creativity generally. You notice their appearance. And at every level, in every culture, that's always been a big deal, in many cases, to the detriment of that culture. But there they were, and there Samuel is, and he thinks, okay, based on this guy's appearance, he's the guy, because appearance is such a huge deal. We make, in many cases, like, and this is not a good thing, but we make value judgments. We even distribute authority and influence based on the fact that somebody kind of just looks the part. It's a massive deal. And so there they are centuries before and Samuel sees him and goes, this has got to be the guy because he just looks like he's the guy. And then the end of verse seven, it says, but the Lord does not look at the things that people look at. People look at the outward appearance. Hence MTV's Catfish, if you've ever watched that. Like that's where that comes from. But the Lord looks, this is so huge, the Lord looks at the heart. One more time, the Lord looks at what? The heart, heart. just real quick and then we'll move on. This is so massive and you find this throughout the scripture, God does not see the way that you see. God does not see the way that you see. You see your past, God sees your future. You see your current performance, God sees your potential. You see your appearance, God's like, I'm all about your heart. You you see what seems like obstacles, and God's like, that actually may be the platform for me to show off and to reveal my glory through your life as I fulfill my purpose for you. God does not see as you see. This is massive. Because unless you move your life, especially if you're a Jesus follower, to the place where you are constantly looking through the lenses of faith, you ultimately will miss what God has for your life. If you do not get up, I think every day, this is why I think the scriptures are so huge. This is why I believe like you need to get in the scriptures to know what God thinks, to know how God sees. It's why you need community. It's why you need to move into environments like next steps so that you can be equipped to see as God sees because until you do I'm telling you you will miss out on what God has because here's the reality left to yourself you will interpret reality or really you will interpret an alternative reality based on what everybody else around you says and what everybody else around you thinks here's what's interesting Eventually Jesse finds out that Samuel's there to anoint the next king of Israel and so Samuel's like bring out all of your sons and Sam or Jesse doesn't even bring out David. Jesse leaves David in the field, Samuel's asking for all the sons, he lines up his, you know, oldest six, and like, it's got to be one of these guys, and nobody in this scenario sees ultimately what God has destined for David's life. His father Jesse doesn't see it, none of his brothers see it, and David himself does not see it. Because I'm telling you, if you do not see through the lenses of faith, you'll miss out on what God has. It's why you need that kind of clarity ultimately to determine your calling. Because I'm telling you, God is not bound by your past. God is not bound by your current performance. God is not bound by your appearance, and God is not bound by what you think are obstacles. And in fact, God's will, destiny, and calling for your life supersedes all of those things. God's destiny and calling, in fact, supersedes what you think you are capable of. And as long as you live your life worried about what you see in your natural mind and through your natural eyes, you will miss what God wants to do because, come on, this is just reality. God. God has something determined that is supernatural for your life that goes beyond what you can determine and you can be capable of on your own, beyond what you could ever accomplish on your own, beyond what you could ever make happen on your own. And the only way you will step into that, the only way you will realize that, the only way you will get clarity on that is to be able to look through the lenses of faith that supersedes everything natural in your life. Do you understand? You know what I'm saying? And so there, there Samuel is calling for all of these guys to come out and, and looking to anoint the next king of Israel. And David's not even there because everybody's thinking, trust me, David's not the guy. David is not the guy. Can, can I just tell you this real quick and I need to move on? You have every reason and every bit of permission to believe that God wants to use your life. If you are a follower of Jesus who has been made in the image of God, which all of us have been made in the image of God, God has destined something for your life. And at some level, God has something planned, supernatural, that is beyond what you would ever do on your own and beyond even what you would choose on your own. And God ultimately is not looking for the obvious choice. He's looking for you. This is why throughout the scriptures you see busted up, incapable, less than impressive people being used by God in the most extraordinary ways for their good and ultimately for his glory. I'm telling you, if you're ever going to step into what God has for you, what is God's will for my life? I don't know, but you need to begin to get clarity and look through the lenses of faith or you'll miss it. And so... The story goes on, and six sons later, they still haven't found the king. And in 1 Samuel 16, 11, it says, so Samuel asked Jesse, and this is kind of an embarrassing question, are these all the sons you have? Like, is this, did you forget anybody? I mean, is there anybody that you just, it just, it just slipped your mind, and Jesse answered, he's, I mean, there's one, there's one kid, but I, trust me, he wasn't worth inviting. I, I Like, there, there's, there's one kid that's tending the sheep, and so Samuel says to him, we'll send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. And so 15-year-old about David is brought in from the fields this scrawny little guy that his brothers think is less than impressive, stands before Samuel and immediately, and I don't know how this works, Samuel gets the indicator from God. This is the guy. This is going to be the second king of Israel. This is the guy that I am choosing to do something special with this nation that I've anointed to change history. And so verse 12, then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is David. This guy is the one. And so Samuel, this is such a crazy story. You should read it. Samuel anoints this little 15-year-old kid with oil. He doesn't really give a lot of information to Jesse. gets his backpack, and then Samuel pieces out and leaves. And from that moment on, David knows that God has put a calling on his life, that God has given him a destiny to be fulfilled, that God has put a promise for him to do something significant, a very, very unique calling. Two years later, David stands before an eight-foot-tall dude by the name of Goliath, and he brings down Goliath, and immediately, at about 17 years old, David becomes a national hero. Everybody's writing songs about him. He is the guy in Israel. He basically gets national acclaim, and everything goes really, really well for him. In fact, over the preceding couple years, he becomes really tight with Saul, who is the current king of Israel. He eventually marries one of Saul's daughters. He then becomes best friends with Saul's um, Saul's son so everything is going great and for about seven years I mean David enjoys success after success after success he is the man in Israel and all of a sudden and you probably know the story Saul becomes incredibly jealous over David's notoriety And all of a sudden things go bad and Saul puts literally a bounty on David's head and puts together a group of men to hunt down David and kill him. And David has to leave the kingdom. He has to basically go on the run with a small band of men. And for the next so many years, he does that. All the while, as he's going through the wilderness, going through this desert region, up and down through the valleys, David knows that God has a calling on his life. David knows that God has something for him up ahead. And as he's running and as he's basically fleeing and he writes throughout the Psalms, God, where are you? God, what are you doing? God, how are you going to fulfill this thing that you've promised through my life? I mean, literally, I have people trying to hunt me down at this point. But during that, that time, during those wilderness years, David began to learn something and understand something that helped him immensely in the days ahead. And what David began to understand was, regardless of what God's called me to, regardless of where God's leading me, regardless of what his destiny for my life is, it's not about me. And no matter where I'm led in the future, and no matter how God fulfills this, and I don't really understand, it has got to be God's will. It's got to be God's way, and it's got to be in God's time. And so all of a the sudden, it, there's two different occasions, where as David is waiting and fleeing for his life. He gets two different opportunities to take Saul out. It's so incredible. The first opportunity is when David and his men are inside of a cave, basically hiding out, and they see that Saul and his band of men are coming by the cave. They can see them through the mouth of the cave. And so David and his guys are waiting for Saul and his guys to go by, and then as they pass by, they're going to come out and obviously go the other direction so they can stay on the run. And all of a sudden, and this is an incredible story, all of a sudden Saul and his men stop And Saul decides to use that very cave as a rest stop, a rest area, to relieve himself. And so Saul goes into the cave, and David and his men are in the back of the cave. Their eyes have already adjusted. They've been in there for a while, and here comes Saul. And then Saul, I don't need to give you a big description of this, just begins to do his thing inside the cave. And all of David's men are looking at Saul, but not too close. They're looking at Saul and going, okay, this is incredible are you kidding me? David, God has promised you this thing. We've heard about it. We know the stories. We know what Samuel did when he showed up at your home. We know that you're destined to be the next king of Israel. That's why we're following you through the desert. And God's promised to deliver it into your hands. And here is Saul in the most vulnerable position imaginable inside of a cave. And he can't see us, but we can see him. Are you kidding me? And in 1 Samuel 24, verse 4, it says, the men said, this is the day that the Lord has made, that the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. And at this point, David, with all of the the thoughts in his mind, the echoes of what's been promised, of what Samuel said to him, of that moment when he's anointed as the next king of Israel, but he hasn't received any of the authority that goes with that. In that moment, David almost falls for it. And just as he's about to take Saul out in the most vulnerable position imaginable, some kind of hitch happens, and David stops, David pauses, and David decides in that moment that I'm not going to take this into my own hands. I'm not going to take my destiny into my own hands. I'm not going to manipulate the outcome of this. This has to be God's will, and it has to be done God's way, and it has to be done in God's time. And so Saul walks out of the cave, and he gets on whatever he's riding in this caravan, and his men begin to go, and then David comes out to the mouth of that cave and yells out something to Saul. And at that moment, all of Saul's men turned to David, and they know exactly what didn't happen in that moment. They know exactly what David didn't do. And David says in 1 Samuel twenty-four twelve, may the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs that you've done to me, but my hand is not going to touch you even though everybody knows that I have the right to take your life to defend my life. I have been on the run now for quite a while, and you are trying to hunt me down and kill me for no other reason than you're jealous of my influence. You're jealous of the power that I've received because of what I did in the nation of Israel. Then a few months go by, and the second time that David has a chance to take Saul out, Saul and his men are in the valley of Ziph. There's about 3,000 of them. And Saul is right in the middle of this camp in this valley, which is generally how they would do it. They'd say that he'd have all his men and then the king would kind of pitch his tent in the middle. He'd have his sword in the ground. He'd have his water jug right there. And David's men who are out basically spying on Saul, making sure they can keep tabs of him, knowing that he's after David's life. David's men find them, come back to David and go, listen, you're not going to believe this Saul and his 3,000 men are right in the middle of the valley of Ziph about to go to sleep for the night and they're in a very vulnerable position so David can't resist David can't help himself he goes up to kind of the edge of the valley on top of this hill this mountain looks down in and sure enough there there's Saul pitching his tent around 3,000 men and the sun is setting and so David turns to Abishai and he's like listen I've got a really really bad idea are you in? "And Abishai is like, "I'm in. So First Samuel 26: 7, David and Abishai went to the army by night. This is ridiculous. And there was Saul lying asleep inside the camp with his spear stuck in the ground near his head. And Abner, and this is like the chief of the bodyguards for Saul. This is the guy that heads all of the security detail. Abner and the soldiers were lying around him, and Abishai said to David, now here they are. They're in the middle of the camp. There's thousands of men. Here's Saul. He's already asleep, man. Nightfall has descended, and Abishai, I think, turns to David and whispers, today God has delivered your enemy into your hands. Basically, David, we've already had one opportunity to take him out, and we didn't take advantage of it let's not squander another opportunity. Come on, David, this is God's will for your life. We don't even need to pray about it. God promised you're going to be the next king. God promised to handle your enemies. God promised to give you this platform that he promised you. And come on, this is the second time now. I mean, first time Saul is on a bathroom break. The second time he's asleep in the middle of the camp. And here we are. Are you kidding me? And so, Abishai says now let me because David I know that God said you can't touch God's anointed but God said nothing to me so let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of the spear and I'm not going to strike him twice listen David all I have to do is grab his sword out of the ground plunge it into him and I know what I'm doing I only need to do it once and then Saul's going to open his eyes and this is justice the last person he's going to see David is you And suddenly, everybody who is here is going to anoint you the next king of Israel. Everybody's going to give you the authority. Everybody's going to give you the power. And so let me pin him with one thrust of the spear. I will not strike him twice, but verse 9, David said to Abishai, don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? I refuse to violate the will of God in order to obtain the blessing of God. I refuse to violate the will of God in order to secure the promises of God. I refuse to somehow circumvent what God wants to do in order to get to my desired destination quicker. Can I just tell you this? That whatever is up ahead for you, whatever that thing is that you're chasing, and maybe legitimately that thing is God's will, the quickest place to get to your desired destination is never the most ethical one. You will always find a way to get where you want to get quicker And David is in this place where he can, in his own hands, secure what he's been after and literally what God has promised to him. But David says, listen, it is not about me. It's not about me, and I'm not going to take this into my own hands. But David does turn to Abishai and like, but let's have a little fun. So they take his spear in the middle of the camp. Everybody's asleep. They take his water jug. They go back up to the edge of the hill, looking down in the Valley of Ziph. The sun begins to rise and David is up on the top of the hill and he yells down to Abner, the chief of the guards, hey, Abner, you missing anything, bro? You, You missing anything? And everybody in the camp knows David's voice. They know who David is. He's nothing but kind of a silhouette as the sun is just coming up over the horizon. And then he yells at Abner again, Abner, you are a poor excuse for a bodyguard, man. You deserve to die. Are you kidding me? We just snuck down into your camp in the middle of the night with 3,000 dudes. We could have killed your king that you are supposed to be guarding. Instead, you're just maxing and relaxing in a tent off to the side. We took the sword. We took the water jug. Are you kidding me? And then David's like, okay, later. And then they disappear over the horizon. Because here's what David began to understand began to understand David refused to replace what God ultimately had put in place. Despite what God had promised, despite what David knew was up ahead, despite what he believed was his destiny, he knew that it had to be God's will and it had to be done God's way and it had to be done in God's timing. There is no safer place to be than in the center of God's will. Not safe physically. Sometimes it's not the safest place physically. The safest place in terms of God is with you. God is basically, is determining the outcome, is responsible for the outcome. The place of maximum fulfillment is when you are in the center of God's will and God is controlling the outcome. And David knew that's where I wanna be. Despite what God's promised, despite what I had the opportunity to do, I am not gonna manipulate the outcome. It is God's will and it's gotta be done God's way. And it's got to be in God's time. So eventually, David finds out that both Jonathan and Saul have been taken out and they die. And this says a lot about David. Again, we, we, we cloud some of the parts of his life, but David legitimately mourns for both of them, which says something about David because these are the last two remaining obstacles to him becoming king. And he mourns not just Jonathan and his friendship with Jonathan, he legitimately mourns the death of Saul. And so at this point, with these two guys gone, David thinks, I'm gonna be the next king of Israel. And there's 12 tribes of Israel, and the tribe of Judah recognizes David as king, but the other 11 tribes recognize one of Saul's sons by the name of Ishbosheth, who becomes basically the king of Israel. And there's this feud between 11 tribes and one tribe that recognizes David. And so for the next seven, eight years, there is a conflict between the house of David and the house of Saul. Over a little bit of time suddenly Ishbo which referred to him as IB because that name's a little bit tricky. Ishbo IB is in his house. He's on a couch and two brothers sneak in over a little bit of time and they end up while he's taking a nap killing him. Cutting off his head. Which heaven you had that fear at some point along the way in your life like there he is and it's all over. And they take his head and they go back to David to basically indicate the fact that he's dead. And they're thinking, man, we're going to get our reward. We have removed the last remaining obstacle to David finally stepping into his destiny. And in 2 Samuel 4, 8, it records that they brought the head of Ibi to David at Hebron and said to the king, here's the head of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, your enemy who tried to kill you. And by the way, just real quick, the reason for beheadings was really simple. There was no other way to indicate that you had killed somebody. There's no iPhones. You can't snap a picture. And so the only way to know if somebody's dead was to take off their head. Like, that's the only way. That's why way back, David and Goliath, David kills Goliath, cuts off his head, and then for several miles just takes his head with him so everybody knew, hey, Goliath is dead. You want to touch it? Like, this is, this is the head of Goliath, for real. This is it. And he, he takes it all the way back so everybody can see and he can put it on display because it's the only way they would know. So verse 9, David answered Rechab and his brother Bana and the sons of Raman at Barathite and said, as surely as the Lord lives, who has delivered me, this is David talking, out of every trouble. And, and by the way, guys, who just brought me the head of Isbosheth, who doesn't need your help and who never asked for your help. When someone told me Saul is dead and thought he was bringing me good news, I seized him and I put him to death in Ziklag. That's the part of the story I skipped over. That was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed an innocent man? And everybody around David's like, David, are you serious? An innocent man? He's not innocent. He took what was yours. He stood in the way of God's promise and God's destiny for your life. He's not innocent. But that's not the way David thought. That regardless of what was up ahead, it was going to be God's will. And it was going to be done God's way, recognizing that there would be a thousand options to get to his desired destination, but not the most, most ethical ones. And it had to be done in God's time. So they killed an innocent man in his own house, in his own own bed in verse twelve. So David gave an order to his men, and they killed them, and they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it, which actually was a sign of honor, in Abner's tomb at Hebron. And finally, at this moment, the other eleven tribes joined the one other tribe and recognized David as the second king of Israel. And in chapter five, verse one of Second Samuel, all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, "We are your own flesh and blood." In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns, i.e., David, we all knew you had the influence. We all knew you had the power, even though we were serving Saul. And we all knew that you deserved to have the authority. And we know that the Lord said to you, you're gonna shepherd my people Israel. We heard the stories. We know what Samuel declared to you all those years ago. And that you will become the ruler. David, the only thing we didn't understand is why you just didn't take it. You had multiple opportunities. Why did you never step into this? Why did you never seize what ultimately was yours? And then in verse three, when all of the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, and this is the moment, 15 years David's waited, And in this moment, and this is what I love about this historical narrative, in this moment, David shows off his true greatness. David does what he would not have done in an earlier season of his life. Because David, like many of us, his talent could take him a lot further than his character would have been able to keep him. And David, with all of his wilderness wandering, knows something in that moment he wouldn't have known in an earlier season. And there he is, and this is the moment, and all of the elders are gathered, and he is about to be handed the power. His word is about to be law. He is about to have all of the authority and all of the influence. And the king made a covenant with them at Hebron. That in this moment, David did what he did not have to do. He sta- and this is, this is so unlike kings in, in ancient world. He stands before the people who literally were a part of denying him the kingdom. Some of them were a part of trying to hunt him down. There's elders there who were under Saul and were a part of the mission to take David out. And there David is before all of them. And none of them deserve it. And David, with all the power, all the authority, he could have done anything he wanted to do decides to make a covenant promise with them at Hebron and the question is why come on when you have all of that this is not a bible story you have all of that authority all that power and you've wronged me I'm probably not using all that authority and all that power to make a promise or covenant with you I'm gonna wield that power and authority to take you out but here's what David understood and this is the point in three words When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them before the Lord. Because in this moment, publicly, David recognized that he was a king that was under authority. And he submitted himself to God's law, which meant as a leader, he was going to submit himself under the people that he had been called to lead under the people by which he had so much influence. And basically David was saying this, listen, I am a king, I am not the king. And for all of David's flaws, for all of the parts of his life that went way off the rails, here's something that David always understood. I am not gonna confuse myself with the king. I am a king, but I am not the king. And so they anointed David king over Israel and David was 30 years old when he became the king and he reigned for 40 years, after waiting 15 long years, eight of those years on the run for his life until he finally received what God had promised him. But here's the thing that's crazy about David, that in that waiting, in that God, where are you at? God, when are you gonna come through? God, when are you going to fulfill what you said to me? In all of that waiting, David learned a couple things, and the couple things he learned was this, that influence ultimately is a stewardship. And even kings are accountable. Even kings are under accountability. Even kings ultimately have somebody to answer to. And that power, that authority, that influence that you've been given in what area, what other, what other I don't know what I'm trying to say, in that area of your life where you have it, wherever you find power, authority, and influence, there you, there you go, and wherever you find it, it is not simply for your sake. God has given it to you to leverage for the sake of other people around you. And there David is as you look at his life. And he has two opportunities where he has every reason in the world and could have justified those reasons in order to get to and secure what God has for his life. And he decided not to do it. He decided to, I'm going to submit God's will, God's way, and in God's time. And as you look at David's life, whether you're a leader or not, there is something that is unbelievably inspiring about it. You look at what David encountered and how he responded, and there's something that rises up in you. But I'm telling you, specifically if you're a Jesus follower, it's not enough to be inspired by David. At some level, that kind of great that David exhibits is required. This is what every single one of us have been called to. And in fact, this is the thing, maybe chiefly among just about every other thing, that God ultimately celebrates and invites the activity of God into your life in a way that you wouldn't experience it otherwise. That invites intimacy with God in a way you wouldn't experience otherwise. And here's why I say that. About a thousand years later, it's hard to imagine that, about a thousand years later after this incident with David and with Saul and with all that happened. About a thousand years later, 20 miles north of Hebron in Jerusalem, Jesus strolls into the city and he exhibits this in the most extraordinary way imaginable. John records it, John who was tight with Jesus, who was around Jesus, who experienced so much of his life at the end of his life begins to document and record everything that he saw and everything that he learned from Jesus. And specifically this incident in the final moments of Jesus' life where he puts on display this whole idea in the most powerful way imaginable. And you probably know the story. John records it. It was just before the Passover festival. This is the final moment. Jesus is about to be betrayed, and they're celebrating God's faithfulness to ancient Israel. And Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave the world and go to the Father. And here's what's really interesting. Like David, Jesus was a man who was hunted down.